0: Hi, and welcome to episode 8 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words, which looks at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642Author or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull Author. Today I'll be examining King Charles and Oliver Cromwell, but the men behind the political masks. I'll be joined by two very special guest authors who will look at Charles and Oliver at home. Dr. Linda Porter is the author of the non-fiction book Royal Renegades, which examines the lives and fates of the children of King Charles I. As well as historical writing, Linda reviews for BBC History magazine, The Literary Review and History Today. Miranda Mallins is the author of The Puritan Princess, a historical novel set in sixteen fifty seven which follows the family of Oliver Cromwell, and in particular Francis, his youngest daughter. Miranda is a member of the Cromwell Association and is currently writing the prequel to Puritan Princess. Both authors draw upon their respective writing and research to look further into the personal sides of these two men, which are so often overshadowed, as is the whole pivotal and momentous period itself. So welcome, Linda and Miranda. It's great to speak to you both today and delve into the 17th century.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you.
0: So, Miranda, we don't know how Oliver and Elizabeth met, um, but was theirs a happy marriage and what was their relationship like?
2: Yes, I think it was a very happy marriage, Mark. Um All the evidence suggests so. Uh, In fact, it's their 400th wedding anniversary next week. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That's very timely. (laughs) It's very timely, exactly. So I'm sure there'll be a few things um, online about that. Um, But yes, we don't know exactly how they met, but the match was likely to have been arranged by their families as most marriages were at the time. Um, But great care was usually taken to ensure there was a compatibility of personalities and a sort of burgeoning liking between the couple. And certainly Oliver and Elizabeth did this for their own children when they were negotiating their marriages. This was very much the Puritan way. And it seemed seemed to work in this case because the couple have nine children uh, and they form a very close-knit family. And the few letters that survive between Oliver and his wife, Elizabeth, are very affectionate. They obviously missed each other a great deal when he was away for long stretches on campaigns during the wars. He wrote to her once. Um, I, I love this, actually. He, he wrote to her basically to say that he had nothing to say, but that the post was going and he didn't want to miss the post without sending her something. <laughs> As uh, he said, I love to write to my dear who is very much in my heart. I, I love that idea. And Elizabeth in turn wrote back to him to say, truly, my life is but a half life in your absence. Now, that kind of love, I think, speaks directly to us in a language that we can all understand all these centuries later.
0: Excellent. Thanks. Um, and they married in 1620, aged 21 and 22 years old. Um, Ten years later, they went through a financial crisis and they were forced to drastically downsize. Um, so how did Elizabeth support her husband through such difficult times as that and the civil war itself?
2: Yes, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, their marriage was certainly one of mutual support. Um, life was very busy for them from the outset. When when Oliver brought Elizabeth home as his new bride, she entered a, ho- a house where um, Oliver's mother was still presiding as uh, a widow, and he was the only boy, and there were seven sisters. And then Oliver and Elizabeth, in turn, eventually had nine children themselves. So they had a large number of dependents, relying on the strength of their marriage to anchor this wider family and as you mentioned there were enormous challenges waiting them down the line for the for this new couple before the civil war even began there was a a financial crisis that saw the family reduced to the status of tenant farmers and a period of intense depression and religious awakening for Cromwell that that accompanied this and actually I think it's quite revealing that um, while Elizabeth had previously had six children in pretty rapid succession, which, as was the way in, in those days, after their sixth child, James, dies as a baby, around the same time that Oliver's financial and emotional crisis is, is, is just getting going, they don't actually have any more children for the next five years when their fortunes turn around, when Oliver receives a substantial inheritance from an uncle, an inheritance that enables him to climb back into the rungs of the the minor gentry, that they have their last two two children, a pair of girls, again, in very quick succession. And, um, you know, these these late additions, I think, well, I hope, um, help them cope with the trauma of losing to their two oldest boys. One um, died when he was at school and the other died in the war which would have been put enormous strain on their marriages their marriage and and then once the wars began Elizabeth provided Oliver with a lot of support and counsel I think we can tell that she was a real rock for him Um, and she looked after his business interests and the family for long periods while he was away fighting and also I'm sure she was working towards the war effort herself at home she doesn't go on campaign with him as some wives do um, but she is included in symbolic occasions um, such as the army's procession into London in 1647, when she rides in the carriage with the wife of Sir Thomas Fairfax, who's the commander in chief of the army. And then at the end of the war, Elizabeth is rewarded when Oliver moves her and the family down to London, when fighting gave way to politics. So at least for a stretch, they all had a a bit more time together.
0: And, and Elizabeth herself is referenced as a quiet lady who very much kept out of the limelight. Um, and you've mentioned letters there that there was another letter between the couple where Oliver wrote, the Lord bless all thy good counsels, and thou art dearer to me than any creature. Um, do you think becoming Lord Protector affected the dy- dynamics of their marriage?
2: Well, yes, I mean, it's quite something to contemplate, isn't it? Uh, it's just such an extraordinary story. But for Oliver's wife and children, I mean, they spent most of their lives in obscurity, at, at their highest points only minor gentry, and at their lowest ebb merely as tenant farmers. And then Oliver's extraordinarily, extraordinary and startling ascent during the civil wars propels them into power, and they become... Basically, a new quasi-royal family living in the royal palaces of Whitehall and Hampton Court. So it's hard to imagine how this hmm. this could not have affected the marriage um, and indeed all the relationships within the large family. And, and actually, this is the reason. This is the heart of why I find the Cromwell family so fascinating, and I love to write about them because it's such an extraordinary journey to <laughs> to imagine. And then after 1653, um, as you say, when when Cromwell becomes Lord Protector, Elizabeth basically finds herself a de facto queen. She's living in state rooms, presiding over court occasions, entertaining ambassadors and visiting dignitaries at her own table. And uh, she's finishing bringing up her youngest daughters in all the glare of the spotlight and and helping to arrange their marriages and everything. And for her children, I mean, they find themselves uh, treated as princes and princesses and referred to as highnesses. And that brings all the enjoyment and the luxury of of that status, of course, but also the the pressure and the attention and more strain and public focus awaits Elizabeth when Oliver dies and the protectorate eventually collapses. And she's um, wrongly accused of stealing royal jewels and has to petition Charles II for, for aid. So, um, yeah, I mean, her life was transformed by her marriage to Oliver more than I think it's possible to imagine in, in virtually any other case of any other marriage, really.
0: Yeah. yes, And, and Linda, um, Charles and Henrietta Maria were married in 1625, aged 24 and 15, respectively. Um, so that was a very different match, one to secure ties with France. But what was their early marriage like?
1: A disaster, <laughs> in a couple of words. Um it It was I think the disaster was born of uh ignorance uh on on both sides and and um uh, what well, quite considerable uh personality differences and I think you have to remember that Henrietta Maria was the youngest child of the great French king Henry the Four Henri IV, and his um second wife Marie de Medici, Uh, And she was only six months old when her father was assassinated. Um, So she grew up with a a considerably older brother as king. Um, She grew up at Saint-Germain-en-Laye outside Paris itself um, in a a mixed household with um, other brothers and sisters, some of whom were half brothers and sisters because... Henry IV had a, a considerable number of illegitimate children by various mistresses, and, and these were all mingled together. I think it was a probably a happy childhood, but um, I, I, from what we can tell, Henrietta Maria wasn't particularly well-educated. I mean, she she was thought of basically as a kind of afterthought who might become marriageable. And when Charles I's attempts to woo the Infanta of Spain um, came to nothing in that rather brilliant debacle in Madrid, where he went in disguise, in inverted commas, um, they turned to France as as a possibility, Um, still following James I's idea that he needed to balance the marriages of his children, some Protestant, some Catholic. Um, But Henrietta Maria wasn't very well equipped, um, uh, either to come to England in, in the sense of any sort of international understanding of which she had absolutely none. Uh, as she was young, um, she was of a different religion. And she came, you know, clasping to her bosom a letter from her mother saying, always remember you are a child of the church. You know, with, with this um, mission, basically, that she'd been given to try and convert the country to Catholicism. Um, and both parties, I think, were very nervous at the beginning of the marriage. But then you have also to remember that that Charles Uh, had all the duties of monarchy. Um, He was very much under the thumb of the Duke of Buckingham.
0: That's right, yes. And three years after their marriage, the Duke of Buckingham was assassinated. Um, What effect did that have on the couple's relationship?
1: I, I think it's perhaps possible to overstate the wedge that Buckingham may have deliberately or you know, uh, accidentally driven in the marriage to begin with. But, I mean, certainly his was a presence that Henrietta Maria couldn't shake. Um, and she, she came with this raft of ladies-in-waiting and confessors and people of that sort. And after a few months, Charles had had enough of all of this uh, and sent them all packing back to France, um, having to physically restrain his wife uh, under the circumstances. So... I mean, really, he he neglected her, um, something which I think he perhaps realised and acknowledged later on. Um, But there was no sign of any pregnancy um, until um, after Buckingham's assassination, uh, which, although it, it devastated Charles at the time, did mean that a man who was very accustomed to having a confidant, you know, someone who was the closest person in his life, turned almost um, perforce to that wife, who had begun to adapt a little and learn a little English. um, um, But but she had begun to acclimatise herself a bit. And she uh, seems either through her own um, understanding or perhaps advice of those around her to have dealt um, very judiciously with um, her husband's loss of Buckingham, and I mean, very soon they were extremely close um, and, and started to behave much more as a, a married couple. Uh, and their marriage never really looked back after that. Uh, I mean, it, it was a very close and loving one and a very loyal one. Uh, it was perhaps one of the the closest marriages in um, in our history. I mean, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York were obviously very close as well, but... Uh, This was, you know, in an age in which royal marriages were very much uh, a matter of political and diplomatic convenience. It it did become, um, despite their religious differences, a, a, a true sort of blending of two souls together. And they were very much in love, I think.
0: And and Henrietta was a very different character to Elizabeth. Um, oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> she
1: she was not shy or retiring. Um, I'm not saying that Elizabeth Cromwell was shy necessarily, but but she certainly. I mean, she had been brought up to be a, a royal princess. I mean, her her great pride in her Bourbon heritage is is somewhat. Um, Uh, not not laughable exactly but it's a bit overstated in a way because of course her father was the first of his dynasty Uh, Henrietta Maria was always very conscious of who she was and her background and she was um accustomed to getting her way not necessarily being the center of attention in France but she certainly believed that she should be the center of attention in in England um and, and acted accordingly and she she was a very outgoing young woman um Uh, She was small and petite and quite pretty. She was a personable um, young woman, even shorter than her husband, which was probably a good thing. (laughs) Otherwise, it would have been slightly embarrassing. Um, But she um, she loved um, acting and and taking part in masks. Um, She was a very extroverted young woman and perhaps helped to draw her husband out of his shell and so she played quite an important part in 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 court life
0: Uh, and Charles uh, in one letter wrote to Henrietta saying there is no danger that I will not undergo to enjoy the happiness of thy company but despite his love for Henrietta um, his devotion to the Church of England was a red line Um, can you tell me a little more about how they differed over religion especially where it concerned the children
1: well uh, Henrietta Maria was, as you know allowed to practice the Catholic religion um in uh, London. She had um you know chapels in in the various royal palaces and she had her own um uh confessor and 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 priests uh, though their numbers were reduced within a fairly short period of the period of time after the beginning of the marriage. Um, so, so that had been a given of the, of the marriage settlement, but she was, um, expressly forbidden from bringing up her children in the Catholic religion, um, something that she overlooked later on in the civil war, of course, <laughs> disobeyed. Uh, but no, the children were all to be brought up, um, as Protestants, um, because, uh, Charles I was, I think, a genuine um, supporter of the Church of England um, and uh, certainly wouldn't have ever allowed her to to step over that line. But he was indulgent as far as the practice of her own religion was concerned. Of course, as um, problems in the Three Kingdoms grew, particularly in Scotland in the late 1630s, the Queen's Catholicism would become more and more and more of an issue, um, because it could be represented uh, as like having, you know, a traitor in your midst right at the very, very heart of the royal family. So it was a problem. um, But it was not a problem between them at a personal level. It was more of a problem at the level of the state.
0: Coincidentally, both couples went on to have nine children and, and both experienced the sadness of losing some of a very That's young age. True. Yeah. Um, Miranda, what, what was Oliver like as a father?
2: Well, he was a devoted family man and father, um, I would say. And even his detractors, I think, would allow him this. It, it, it's very clear from from all the surviving evidence. He this was a very close knit family. Um and you can see this again from the way that the children all have nicknames uh, and the letters that survive between all of them are so affectionate and intimate and full of news and gossip and, and banter. You know, they're, they're a very close, I guess you would say, ordinary family. And uh, in, in contrast, of course, to a royal family, as Linda was just describing, they're they're brought up you know, as a family unit, you know, within a small house with the parents actually very involved on a daily basis. And um, as for what kind of father he was, Cromwell was very sort of engaged with his children. He was always thinking and worrying about them, whether they were behaving themselves, whether they were prospering, whether they were happy, even when they were grown up. And um, I, I, I feel with him, actually, and it's something that we can probably all relate to, um, even <clears throat> this day and age, that he slightly lightens up as a father <laughs> as he gets older. <clears throat> that's that's how it seems to me. When he had his older children, um, you know, he, he's a little bit sort of strict with them. He worries particularly about his eldest surviving son, Richard who, um, in fairness to Richard, never expected to be Oliver's heir because there were two older brothers ahead of him who, who died tragically, unexpectedly. Um, And so when Richard becomes Cromwell's heir, actually, you know, he he's a little bit, he's a little bit of a kind of layabout and loves loves his um, hunting and his drinking and his easy life. And Cromwell worries a lot about him and his debts and his loose way of living. And he's similarly a little bit strict with his older daughters um, and always. Always enjoining them in letters to um, uh, not not be seduced by kind of worldly concerns and vanities, and, and to keep um, um, <clears throat> to keep their their faith and to you know do the right thing. But I mean that might all sound heavy handed, but as he gets older and his, his 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 youngest children, these two little girls who were very much a, a second family for him and Elizabeth, um, by that stage Cromwell really indulges them. Uh, he calls them his little wenches, and um they write him these lovely little childlike letters while, while he's away fighting the wars, which he which he treasured, and he looked forward to receiving them. um And in the case of all of his children, um he took great care in arranging their marriages, which was you know a, a central duty of a father in this period, working hard to ensure that they were they would be successful unions. Where the couple, you know, would would potentially be happy together, and I think we can certainly say that he prioritised that kind of matching of personalities uh, and also godliness to an agree. He to a degree he prioritised that over simply finding the best sort of um, uh, match in terms of enhancing his own family status. Um, so that that's quite impressive. And then once he's Lord Protector, his His children and their spouses um, were at the very centre of his court. His sons-in-law are given key roles in his administration. His daughters are basically at the centre of the court social life. Uh, And he even used to take his his grandchildren in with him to council meetings where they used to sit on his sit on his knee <laughs> so I, I sort of pictured them almost in the sort of victoria and albert mode you know this is this really is a sort of a family business business and a new dynasty
0: and, and linda um what was charles like as a father
2: uh, well charles was a loving father as well but um
1: perforce much more distant um, uh, it, it's occasionally been sort of people have tried to represent in the past that that somehow Henrietta and Maria and Charles were much more hands-on parents than, than previous monarchs. But this isn't actually true. Uh, in fact, the whole business of bringing up royal children hadn't changed very much since the high Middle Ages. Um, they had a separate household. Uh, most of the children, with the exception of the heir, Charles, who was given his, his own household when he reached the age of about eight, as was customary with royal heirs, uh, were brought up in St. James's Palace um, together. Uh, but even so, they did not see their parents regularly. Um, they would be brought to court for um perhaps state visits, important diplomats uh, to learn how to behave under those circumstances for when they would need to do so as adults. Um, But their um, education and day-to-day lives were quite separate from their parents. Now, uh, that's not to say that the King and Queen didn't take interest in them. They did take quite a lot of interest in them and and they would make visits to see them where possible, but they did not live together as a family in the way that the the Cromwells did. And eventually, of course, Charles, the future Charles II was sent off to, um, under the governorship of the uh, uh, Earl and then Duke of Newcastle, as William Cavendish became. Uh, I mean, Charles... Charles was, uh, uh, I think, a loving father. He did keep, apparently, at Hampton Court, a stick on which he he recorded the heights of his children as they grew, which I think is a rather um, touching sign of his his parental interest in them. Uh, and I suppose the the clearest indication of his fondness for his children came uh, once the first Civil War was well over in in sixteen forty seven, when he was a captive. Um, and he was allowed to see James, uh, Elizabeth and Henry, who were still in, in this country at that time. Um, James would escape not that long afterwards, the following year. But so uh, he was allowed to see his, his three um, younger children and they were, Charles asked to see them. Um, initially, Parliament wasn't very keen, but Fairfax himself wrote on the King's behalf and he was allowed to see his children. Eventually, a meeting was um, arranged at Maidenhead at the Greyhound Inn, which may not sound an sort of entirely appropriate <laughs> locale for such a thing, but I don't think it was done over pints of beer or anything like that. Uh, and uh, uh, Charles um, was delighted to see James and Elizabeth again. But Henry, who was born in 1640, didn't know who this man was. And his father said to him, "You know, Do you know me, child? To which Uh, And they called him Harry as well. They did have nicknames even within their family. Replied, as I said in my book, I think with perhaps more honesty than tact, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And just um, looking at some letters now. Um, So Henrietta, she took to Exeter in 1644 to prepare to give birth to the last child and and her health suffered greatly in that pregnancy Um, and that that's when charles penned a, a desperate letter to the physician um, yeah doctor yeah. for the love of me go find my wife how much do you think charles's love for henrietta and concern over her safety affected his political or military decisions
1: um to be honest not very much i mean i i think it it was something at the back of his mind um but uh, his his military decisions um were largely based on the reality, uh, of the situation that he faced, I think. And, and his, uh, he, though he didn't leave all of them to Prince Rupert, um, he, he did have, uh, advisors who, who, you know, had attempted to counsel him as to what was the best course of action. Um, he was, he had done, uh, a loop in the southwest anyhow he was based at oxford of course at that time and it was thought that you know if oxford fell then obviously henrietta maria would not be safe i mean the parliament would have uh, uh put her on trial for, for for treason uh so she was um it was thought that she needed to go west i don't know that exeter was actually her necessarily chosen destination but she became progressively unwell during the latter stages of the pregnancy and sort of had, had to stop at Exeter because there was an appropriate house there um you know for for her to be looked after and give birth in but in in I have always thought um that that Charles was able to separate um his wife um, and her welfare, not entirely from his political and military decisions, because obviously where she was would have played a role in this, and he didn't want her captured by uh, the opposing forces. But I I, I think, you know, there were a different set of priorities that that he had there, and in in a way Henrietta Maria herself must have recognized this when when she did flee Oxford. Uh, you know, that, that her, her presence was not helpful and that for her own safety and perhaps for what remained of her husband's cause, which was already beginning to crumble rather badly in 1644, she she, she needed to, to go away. I think more um, crucial were the, the sort of level of the letters and duplicity um, that Charles had engaged in uh, that were discovered, you know, after the Battle of Naseby, when his um, uh, when his a lot of his documents were discovered um, uh, afterwards, and I, I think that perhaps shocked even people who'd been perhaps willing to give him the benefit of the doubt.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, and Miranda, um, uh, so Valentine Walton's son, he was killed at Marston Moor, and, and Oliver breaks the news in a, in a very touching letter, and he describes the the young man's last moments. Um, and both Valentine and Oliver lost a son that year. Um, and Oliver writes in the letter, Sir, you know my trials this way, but the Lord supported me with this. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the letter and the light it sheds on Oliver as a, a family man?
2: Yes, certainly. Well, this this is one of the most famous letters of the Civil War. And in my view, um, it's one of the most moving and beautiful letters ever written, actually, and certainly one of the best letters of condolence ever written. And um, so Valentine Walton, um, the recipient of the letter, was married to Cromwell's sister. Um, so the young man that um, whose death Cromwell is breaking to his father uh, is Cromwell's nephew. So someone he would have loved dearly himself. Um, and also in terms of the context, you know, Cromwell felt a great sense of responsibility and love for his soldiers and um, young Valentine Walton was in his, his own regiment. Um, and he dies at this uh, seminal, extraordinary battle of Marston Moor um, in service to this great cause. Um, so it's a it's a terribly moving um, moment. And um, Cromwell uh, Cromwell writes to to Valentine Walton firstly to tell him the outcome of the battle, but then to to break this news to him. And he talks very tenderly about his, his nephew. He says he was a gallant young man, exceeding gracious, and he tells of his popularity among the other men and of his bravery and good humour at his death. And, and it's a horrible death. He's, his, his leg is shattered by a cannonball, um, which kills his horse under him and three other horses. It's such an enormous explosion. And then the poor, the poor young man, and he's only in his early 20s, um, is, uh, is, is still alive at this point and quite lucid. Um, but he's taken off to be operated on and t- to have his leg taken off um and he 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 dies as a consequence of that so it, you know it's, it's really horrid um but um as for the letter itself you know there there are definitely clues in the letter as to how Cromwell thought about fatherhood uh, and as you say, perhaps also how he coped with the losses of his own sons um he'd lost three sons um by this point and one in particular uh his second oldest son oliver um who had died also um in the war effort um a little earlier in the same year and who was the same age as young valentine as well so they they were and and in both cases those two young men um had were actually the second sons of their respective parents but whose older brothers had died so they'd become the unexpected heirs so they the the, the loss of both is completely um analogous and parallel mm. um, and, you know, Cromwell writes to Valentine Walton, his, his the father. He says this most beautiful phrase. He says, there is your precious child full of glory to no sin nor sorrow anymore. And he describes him as fit for God. Um, and I think this is the key language. It's, it's clear that while Cromwell... And by extension, um, Valentine, the father, Valentine Senior, would feel the deaths of these lovely boys with enormous pain. Um, Cromwell does believe this is God's will and that these children will ascend into heaven Um, and also that that they're serving a greater cause um, uh, in terms of the war. Uh, And and indeed, I think there's a sense that for, for, for Cromwell and his contemporaries at this time that God perhaps calls his most precious children back to him early that perhaps all children always belong to God and are simply on loan to their parents. That, that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah. There's, there's a real tension there, I think, between the loving father um, who cannot bear to lose his children, obviously, um, and the man of strong faith who believes, who, who has to believe that God is at work in these tragedies. And perhaps it's only in believing this that, that he could carry on at all.
0: And and there's a point when both Charles and Oliver um, put all else aside and deal with each other as fathers. And, and Linda, you touched on that, the, the special moment after the chaos of the civil wars. King is in captivity and he requests to see those of his children that have been held nearby. Um, Miranda, how did that meet and affect Oliver? Well,
2: a- apparently the sight brought tears into Cromwell's eyes. Crom- Cromwell's a very emotional man and very much wears his heart on his sleeve. So I, um, I believe that, that this would, would have been a true account um, by uh, Sir John Barclay, who's there at the time, one of Charles's advisors, that Cromwell you know is brought to tears by this meeting. And apparently he said, Cromwell said, that the king was the uprightest and most conscientious man of his three kingdoms. Uh, so I think certainly for Cromwell, seeing the king as a loving father would have endeared him to Cromwell himself, as he was such a devoted father. I've just actually been writing about this in my new novel and, and having Cromwell express this, this thought to his daughter, Bridget. Um, these few months are a real honeymoon period between the army and the king. The, the army offer the king the best peace terms he ever receives, the head of heads of proposals. And um, it really looks for a time as if he's going to accept them. And it's only when Charles proves false in his dealings and brings the Scots in to invade England and begins a second civil war that Cromwell loses faith in him. And even then, he's very reluctant to to bring him to trial and to abolish the monarchy in general. He explores all sorts of other options about um having Charles abdicate or or maybe uh, in favour of one of his children.
0: Right. Uh, and Linda, do you do you think that meeting made Charles see Oliver in a different light?
1: Um. I'm not sure what light he would have seen Oliver in actually before or afterwards, because as far as Charles was concerned, that um, the, the key player on the opposing side, if you like, would have been Fairfax, not Cromwell. Mm. Um, Cromwell was a, a second in command. I I don't know actually what um, Charles thought about Oliver Cromwell at that time. I mean, he would have known that he was a highly competent uh, general Um but I think he would have assumed that um, that the person that he needed to deal with was Fairfax um, as the commander in chief, not, not Cromwell. It's an interesting question, actually, because we don't even know, uh, as the, the year 1648 unfolds, um, uh, precisely what... Um, what Charles thought about Cromwell I mean Miranda you'd be able to answer this I think slightly better than I would because it's a while since I've looked at all of this but uh, I mean I'm not aware that Charles ever made any great sort of recorded statements about what he thought about Oliver Cromwell is that right?
2: No he he didn't you're absolutely right Linda and you, you touch on such an important Um, point there which again addresses a key misconception about the civil wars that a lot of people think the war was um king versus Cromwell which it obviously absolutely wasn't Uh, and as you say Fairfax is commander-in-chief and Cromwell doesn't become commander-in-chief of the army until uh you know well after the 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 regicide well after the death of the king and I think you're probably absolutely right that Charles from his point of view would would barely have noticed um uh, this 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 uh, bluff, but uh, um, rather uh, uh, I don't know, poorly dressed. He's always t- he's always described as being and rather unremarkable seeming uh, Fenlander, who was just one of the deputies. And you know, he was obviously one of the uh, rising stars of the New Model Army, but um, not not any more than that. And I'm not aware really of of, Cro- of Charles in the rest during the remainder of his life as Cromwell's influence undoubtedly. Increases. Um, I'm not aware of anything that Charles actually expresses about him in, in particular.
0: Um, so, touching on your, both of your books now, um, so Miranda, the, the Puritan Princess is a novel set in 1657. So, why is it that you chose that particular year?
2: Well, I wanted to write about the Cromwells at the height of their power. Um, and, and this was it. You know, everything smiled on them this year. Cromwell is already Lord Protector. He's been Lord Protector um, for four years at this point. And Parliament offers him the crown. And though this led to a a long struggle, both between Cromwell and Parliament, but also within Cromwell's own mind, he goes through agonies over this decision before he ultimately refuses to become king. Um, he, He actually played his hand really well and ended up being invested once again, as Lord Protector for a second time, with all the pomp and ceremony of a coronation and under a new written constitution approved by parliament uh, and a slightly more traditional constitution this time um, with the influence and power of the army somewhat reduced, which is something Cromwell had long been trying to find a way uh, to do that. And, and so in you know, in the middle of 1657, we, we now have effectively um, a constitutional monarchy really it's all intents and purposes under a written constitution and a restored house of lords too and cromwell doles out lots of patronage um cementing his position cementing his wide um family and and extensive network um and he's allowed now to name his heir as well and be- begins grooming his surviving eldest son, Richard, who I mentioned earlier, w- was a slight disappointment to, to his father, and starts grooming him um, to succeed him. Uh, and also this year, he his two youngest girls, these little little wenches that, that I mentioned earlier, um, they he, he negotiates uh, these very grand marriages for both of them, uh, one of which I think is a love match. I won't say too much about it because that's the plot of, the plot of my novel, but um, but uh, these two young girls really are living as princesses and you know um, they had these magnificent royal weddings a week apart in November in uh, one of them in Whitehall, one of them in Hampton Court, into families um, from England's old nobility. So this is, this is a real kind of rapprochement happening um, with the, between the new Cromwellian protectorate regime and the old Royalist families. And again, cementing the Cromwell's family position still further. So, so really in 1657, this, this is looking like a dynasty with legs and a dynasty which would follow the Tudors and the Stuarts into the history books. And yet within a year Cromwell is dead uh, as is his um, daughter, Betty. And within nine months of that, the Cromwellian Protectorate itself has collapsed, and the family fell from power to tumble back into the obscurity from which they had so blazingly come. Um, and I just had to tell the, the story of that in, incredible arc.
0: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and and what made you decide to have Francis or so Oliver's youngest daughter as your main character?
2: Hmm. Yes, great question. Well, I, I was drawn into fiction because, um, I, I, you know, I, I was a historian first, so I'm used to writing um, writing nonfiction, but I was drawn into writing fiction in the first place by wanting to write about the women in Cromwell's family who have hitherto been almost entirely overlooked. Um, they appear in the sources and the historical accounts, um, but it's only ever at the margins, in the footnotes, you know, etc. But as I've said already at the time, Cromwell's family um, had come with him on this extraordinary journey and were at the very centre of his court and his rule uh, and looked set to become a new ruling dynasty. So it seemed vital to me to to, to reinsert their voices into the traditional narrative. Um, And then casting about uh, among the women for my lead character, Frances, who is um, Oliver and Elizabeth's youngest daughter, so one of these two little afterthought children um she just leapt off the page for me because her story is instantly gripping um her marriage prospects are uh, were intimately bound up in this greatest political question namely whether Cromwell should become king and if he does become king um you know she instantly becomes the greatest prize on the international marriage market and indeed uh, um actually I'm sure Linda knows this but the um Exiled future Charles II uh, is interested in one yes. point yeah. in marrying. Yes, oh, marrying. Wow. Oh. Yeah, Which I, I think is such an amazing sort of counterfactual, isn't it? If, if they'd actually agreed to that, uh, it, it could have been actually quite a neat answer to the um, to, to the uh, to the civil wars to have the houses of Cromwell and Stuart united um, to each other. But uh, anyway, it wasn't to be, and Francis herself had already fallen fallen in love. And uh, this hints at the other thing which attracted me to Francis, and that's um, her personality. You know, she, she's you can see from the sources, even though we don't have that many you know, of her letters or, or accounts of what she did, that she is she has such determination and passion and loyalty um, and sense of humour. Uh, and she's also a huge flirt, which I, I really I really like. It, that's really fun. <laughs> um, and you know, She she had the most intense experience of life at her father's court as the youngest of his children and living with him the most closely as Lord protector and for her the family's fall from power would have hit her particularly hard as she could hardly have remembered a a normal life beforehand Uh, and then I say very finally this is a a silly point but I'm the youngest of three daughters myself (laughs) <laughs> I naturally identified with the youngest girl. It just that she just came. She came naturally to me. <laughs>
0: uh, great. And you, you've mentioned that the 17th century is commonly portrayed on screen as either horror or witch finding, which which I totally agree with. Um, if Hollywood gave you an unlimited budget, what would your 17th century or Civil War film look like? Oh,
2: what what, what a dream! What a... <laughs> question (laughs) and yes you know you mentioned that this is such a bugbear of mine apologies if I go on a bit of a rant about this but you know I do feel that not only is this period largely overlooked in popular culture um, in novels and in films in particular but when Mm. it when it is tackled when it ever does get any airtime um, it's usually at an angle it's usually as, as a genre piece it's a it's a horror or a psychedelic story and we we just don't seem capable of approaching this period straight on and taking it on its own terms I, I wonder if it's just too messy it's too complicated um, to fit into our neat story of kings and queens it, it, it it's almost as if we have to alienate ourselves from the people of this period which seems so bizarre to me uh, I'm sure Linda would agree because they're such wonderful people They're such a one I think it is the most important period of our history. (laughs) Absolutely, you've said it. And they're such such amazing people, so passionate, so rational. Uh, And I think the period really suffers. Um, It suffers kind of from both sides. It suffers as being the poor relation of the Tudors. Um, But I think it also suffers from an unfortunate comparison to the Restoration. Uh, And in this, I think, as in so many ways, we're still reading from Charles II's script. The, yeah, the something years. which I tried to correct a bit in my latest book. <laughs> Absolutely, you do. And I think that's been picked up in reviews of your book too, which I has, yeah. I'm so yeah. pleased about because it, it, it desperately needs reversing this, this sort of enormously successful kind of propaganda campaign of oblivion where Charles II po- backdates his reign by 11 years and effectively kind of wipes out the, the 11-year Commonwealth and Protectorate period. And he, he, he did an, amazing, <laughs> an amazingly <laughs> successful job of that. Um, but I always feel that the 1660s, which do get a bit more of a look in um, in, in film and TV and everything, that they're always allowed to be proto-enlightenment, you know, with, with Samuel Pepys and his friends buzzing in and out of coffee shops, going to the theatre, founding the Royal Society. Um, whereas the 1640s and the 50s, which had happened only just before and involved all the same people, Pepys, you know, not least, that they're shown as backwards and superstitious and repressive and, and all this focus on horror and witchcraft really jars for me and bears no relation to the real lives of the conscientious and uh, people that I study uh, and incidentally I mean scientists who founded the Royal Society were already meeting under Cromwell and indeed Cromwell was a patron of Christopher Wrens so I, I think we emphasize the change far you know far too much over the continuity um sorry I, I realize I'm almost almost just about to answer your question <laughs> <laughs> thought you i give you a rant anyway uh so my film well obviously it would have to be a no expense spares dramatization of my novel um <laughs> obviously um but but in all seriousness i i'd love to see oliver cromwell and his rule on film at all actually uh, and particularly if the protectorate was was fairly portrayed as as the colorful cultured court it was and not the black coated you know austere dictatorship of of popular myth and it would work really well because you know you could save a bit of money by having the big civil war battle scenes as flashbacks and memories and film the present day story of Cromwell's court in the real palaces of Hampton Court and the banqueting house Uh, and you'd have lots of lovely banquets and masks and weddings and hunting and hawking Diplomatic tussles, assassination plots, lots of female characters an in, in, intense family romantic relationships you know all the stuff that we love from watching the Tudors on screen. Uh, only it would be completely new, you know, politics, passion and Puritans. You know, what more could, uh, could anyone want? So uh, if anyone out there is interested, do get in touch with my agent.
0: <laughs> good good one yeah yeah and Linda um Royal Renegade so it's a non-fiction that looks at the stories of King Charles's surviving children so why is it that you chose to focus on the children
1: um because they're not very well known um I think um apart from uh, Charles II himself and perhaps to a lesser degree James II because of the um circumstances in which he lost his throne, having only sat on it for three years, Uh, I don't think many people know that that Charles I and Henrietta Maria had any other children, and that their lives were, uh, in almost all cases, very sad, uh, and particularly dramatic, and that they they actually are a microcosm of what happened to many families during the the Civil Wars. They were divided in time, in place, and by religion. the the children of Charles I and Henrietta Maria epitomise that. You've got um, uh, James and Henrietta, Henrietta Anne, as she becomes in France. Um, uh, well, she's brought up from the outset as a Catholic, <clears throat> despite having been baptised at Exeter Cathedral as a Protestant. Uh, her mother disregarded completely her husband's instructions in that. In that particular way, mind you, because Henrietta Career was in exile at the Bourbon court in France, it might have been rather difficult to ostentatiously bring up your child as a Protestant there, but anyhow. Um, uh, and Charles, of course, Charles II converted on his deathbed to Catholicism, J- James converted later on in life, um, but uh, they, uh, though those three, um, either became at an early age or later on Catholics, whereas Elizabeth and Henry um, were brought up as Protestants, and so was Mary. Uh, And so the three of them uh, retained their Protestant beliefs um, uh, until the day of their deaths. And it cost Henry his relationship with his mother. who I've always thought of as the most appalling woman. Um, As a mother, Henrietta Maria was a disaster, and her children really didn't like her very much. (laughs) So that's why I I chose to write about them, Um, largely because I think the stories are dramatic and so sad. And I noticed, Mark, that you'd said, you know, um, uh, which child do you think was most gifted in wine? If I could go back in time and alter their fates, which one would I choose? Mm. Well, I think the most gifted one is probably Princess Elizabeth, who, of course, died at the age of... 14 on the Isle of Wight. In a a few weeks time, it'll be the uh, 420th anniversary of her her death. Um, She was obviously extremely bright, um, unlike her two elder brothers. Um, She received an excellent education from a lady tutor. I mean, she and Henry were brought up in very strange circumstances as part of the family of the Earl of Northumberland, but still um, unable to have the freedom uh, which um, they would have expected as as royal children. Um, and and uh, of course, I, I think also, if I could alter their fates, I'd perhaps try and give her a longer life. Um, she was already suffering from tuberculosis when she was when she and Henry were rather peremptorily moved to the um, Isle of Wight in 1650 when their elder brother Charles in, invaded Scotland and they were, it was thought they might still be a focus for royalist discontent unless they were placed somewhere out of harm's way. And they were moved from Penshurst place near where I live in Kent, um, where they'd been very well looked after by the Countess of Leicester, uh, to, to Carisbrook Castle, where their father had been incarcerated, of course. And Elizabeth did not survive there more than a few weeks, actually. Henry, of course, lived on... Um, and, of course, Mary didn't have a particularly fun-filled life either. I mean, she being married at the age of nine, even if it's only a nominal thing, is not particularly mm. to anybody's taste. And, uh, I mean, you, you know, that rather sweet picture of her with her slightly older husband, the marriage dissolved into, you know, nothing that was any had any affection. Both she and Henry died within a few months of each other of smallpox in this country. So it is... It is hugely sad, and the impact that this may have had on Charles II, I, I think, is something we don't really know. Um, uh, and undoubtedly, he was very badly affected, especially by his brother's death. But uh, it, it's um, you know, it's not a well-known story, and it is a very sad one. But one thing I'd just like to say at the very end, if I could. Um, Is that, you know, I suppose many people suppose that because I wrote about the royal family during the Civil War, I must be, if one were to take sides again, a royalist. I most emphatically am not. (laughs) <laughs> I am a member of the Cromwell Association. Jolly good. And, and I, I actually think, um, and this may cause people to have conniptions, to use an American term, I actually personally still think, for all his faults, and he did have them, that Oliver Cromwell was the greatest man who ever governed England. Oh, well, the British Isles. Here, Linda.
2: Excellent.
0: Well <laughs> That that has been such a fascinating. Uh, Discussion. Uh, thank you both.
2: Well, oh, thank you for asking me. No, that was that was great. I so enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah,
0: likewise. I hope you've enjoyed this fun and interesting chat about the Stuarts and the Cromwells. Why not check out both authors' books if you haven't already? Next week, I'll be speaking to Keith Dowen, deputy curator of the Royal Armories, about some very special Civil War items in their collection. In the meantime. Please do rate the podcast and get in touch if you have any special requests for content. Thanks for listening.